This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. So, good evening again, everybody. Uh, The Buddha's practice uh, began with suffering. Probably all of you know uh, the the story of the Buddha. Uh, The Buddha's father tried to protect him from all of life's unpleasantness. And for a long time, uh, this worked out fairly successfully. Uh, which proves that uh, denial sometimes can work, at least uh, up to a point. Eventually, though, uh, circumstances uh, arose that uh, were strong enough for the Buddha and for us too, strong enough to break through our defenses And all of a sudden, uh, the whole world appears different to us. Uh, Frightening, tragic, dark. It's as if uh, we were going along, uh, you know, happily minding our own business, and all of a sudden, somebody pulls aside the curtain and reveals to us for the first time uh, the way things actually are. So that's what happened to the... Buddha, and uh, his story is is pretty much like ours. Just like uh, the Buddha, like the Buddha's parents, uh, our parents too, tried their best to protect us from all the unpleasant things of life. It seems that this is the duty of every parent, she thinks or he thinks, that to protect the children uh, from life's harshness because they're only children and it will be too much for them. So parents feel like they ought to do that. Although possibly uh, the parents are fooling themselves and it's themselves that they're trying to protect rather than their children, but that's another story. Anyway, one day 
every child realizes the world is not the way mommy and daddy said it was. And then, out of her horror and shock, she begins from that day forth to construct a shield of protection so that she can cope with the world. And we call that shield of protection uh, the self or, or the personality. So the Buddha left home. And when the Buddha left home, it means he, he threw aside his defenses. And that's what it means in the story when he takes off his princely clothes and puts on the clothes of a beggar when he leaves his family and former life behind. He's throwing off all of his defenses and he's going forth into the world, willing for the first time to experience life uh, completely naked and unprotected. And in order to do this, he has to stop denying the reality of suffering, the thoroughness of suffering, and recognize that the very nature of conditioned existence is suffering. That's the nature of conditioned existence. That's the nature of life as we know it. It's off base, it's off balance, it's out of kilter, it's awry, it's unsatisfactory, it doesn't quite work out. Not because uh, there's something wrong with us or we failed to make the proper arrangements or adjustments, but because that is the nature of conditioned existence itself. Seeing this, the Buddha could sit down on his enlightenment seat and he could see the truth of suffering even more deeply and ever more deeply from that day on for the rest of his life. So, uh, because of this teaching of the Buddha, a lot of people think that Buddhism is kind of pessimistic. You know, suffering, suffering, nothing but suffering. That's all I ever hear about from you Buddhists, you know. Can't you cheer up a little bit? <laughs> Didn't you ever hear of, uh, you know, fun? And enjoyment, you know? Why are you always obsessed with suffering? But far from uh, being a pessimist, I actually think the Buddha was one of the world's, one of the greatest optimists in history. Now, an ordinary optimist is someone who says, uh, well, since you uh, Buddhists pointed out, one does have to admit, uh, and I have to admit, that yes, there are a lot of challenges and tragedies in life, it's true, but I'm an optimist and I would prefer to look on the bright side of things. That's a conventional optimist. But the Buddha's optimism uh, goes beyond this. Exactly because the Buddha began with a full appreciation of and a, and a direct confrontation with the pervasive nature of suffering, he could see that suffering 
could not only be ameliorated, as an opti- optimist would ameliorate suffering, but that it could actually be completely overcome, and that a full and thoroughgoing happiness was possible. Not only when things were going really well, and not only by putting on a happy face on top of things when they don't go so well, but through a full and deep appreciation of the nature of suffering and of the self, there could be a kind of unprecedented happiness. So to see suffering truly and fully for the Buddha is to go beyond suffering, to penetrate suffering and to embrace suffering is to embrace existence as it really is. And in this, the Buddha saw, there is a deep satisfaction and happiness that is larger than any mood or temporary emotion. So despite what you may hear, uh, suffering is not Buddhist practice. Being alive, that's Buddhist practice. Meeting our living, uh, honestly, realistically, with a full heart on each occasion. And appreciating completely each occasion, whether it's good or bad. Uh, We Buddhists are not fools. We know the difference between happiness and unhappiness. And like everybody, we prefer happiness. But if it's suffering that comes, then it's suffering that comes. And if it's happiness that comes, then it's happiness that comes. And either way, it is. And as such, because it is, it is magnificent. It is awesome. And it will pass. And something else will come. So that's the spirit of our practice. There's nothing uh, to attain. There's no magical end point. There's no goal, really. There's just going on being alive and going on being amazed and engaged with whatever happens. And that's why Whenever you see a person, anybody, you always know, here is someone who suffers. And here is someone who has the potential to go beyond suffering. Every person is a Buddha in some stage of development. Maybe she's a princess still in her parents' home, enjoying her life. Or maybe she's right now uh, suffering deeply. Or maybe she's fully launched on her enlightenment quest. Or maybe she's already a realized Buddha teaching us through her subtle actions. Or maybe she's in all of these stages at the same time, though she may only manifest one at a particular moment. 
So for Buddhist practitioners, uh, suffering is not something we're seeking, certainly, but it's also not something that we're avoiding. When we see another person uh, suffering, we recognize exactly within the suffering, at the heart of the suffering, the Buddha, and it moves us. And we receive teaching from that person through her very suffering. Of course, if we're able to, we try our best to alleviate suffering, but never from the vantage point uh, of, oh, look at you, you are a poor suffering person, and I am not a suffering person, so I'm going to help you. Because we always know uh, that we are the suffering of any person. We're at one with that person in the endless cycle of living and dying. And people often say to me, you know, I feel, I feel guilty, you know, I'm so privileged. And I always say, yes, but it's just temporary. We're all in the same boat. Uh, One of the really shocking things that one discovers uh, about uh, life, an endless source of sorrow, you know, is how uh, much we hurt one another. So we all appreciate, you know, the suffering of of death, of sickness, old age, mudslides, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, car accidents, and all of that is hard enough to bear, but it's really upsetting the way people, often unthinking innocent people, possibly weak and out of control people, sometimes deeply disturbed, deranged people, how they hurt one another, how we hurt one another through our careless actions. And and it's really shocking, you know, to contemplate how much turmoil and suffering goes on in the world for that reason. That no, nobody escapes that. You know, bad enough as it is, you know, without that. And yet that accounts for so much uh, suffering. And lately I've been thinking uh, in particular about the suffering of women. It's one of the things that uh, shocks me. In our day-to-day life, at least in our local culture, we might imagine, or at least men might imagine, that the suffering of women is not that great. But actually, uh, women, just by being women, are victimized every day. Women are raped, beaten up, intimidated, Sometimes by their husbands and boyfriends, women are made to feel small, insignificant, unimportant. 
And even when this is not the case on a daily basis, the residue you know, of this over from the past, I think, resides somewhere in the heart of every woman. I have a cousin who is uh, an important cancer researcher. And she gets invited all over the world to give scientific uh, papers. And she's really respected scientist and praised for her work. She has a husband who's a tremendously proud of her and really supportive of her in, in, in every way. A couple months ago, uh, she came uh, to Palo Alto to give a paper there. They live in Israel. And so I drove down there to have dinner with her. I don't see her so often. And we had a nice dinner together. And we got to talking, and she told me something. You know, I've known her all my life, you know, literally. And uh, she told me something I never heard before. She's maybe in her early 60s. She said, all this time, her whole life, you know, her three brothers have never once asked her anything at all about her work. And every time she's with them, she tries to, you know, say something about it. And they, she said they changed the subject because it's impossible for them to imagine that their sister, the only girl in a family of boys, could possibly be doing anything of significance. Now, in a way, you know, we should be able to laugh at this because, you know, clearly my cousin is a much smarter and aware person than any of her brothers. And she's doing fine, you know. She has no problems. But, you know, this really hurts her, even after all these years. And when she told it to me, you know, she was in tears. And it really, it seems as if no matter how hard she tries, no matter how much scientific renown she accumulates, maybe she'll even find the cure for cancer. But it won't ever, you know, wipe away this old wound, and I don't think her brothers will ever change. But, you know, like I say, this is a small thing. My cousin, like most of us in the room here, are, are, she's among the lucky ones. In other cultures around the world uh, today, and in our own culture in the past, things were not uh, as good as they are for us here and now. In a large part of the world today, now, in 2006, <coughs> marriage is, and I don't think this is too much of an exaggeration, a form of slavery uh, for women. And women are, are literally sold by their families to husbands and are absolutely under the control of these husbands. They're prisoners. 
In India, when a bride's family uh, does not deliver the dowry that has been promised as part of the marriage contract, it sometimes happens that the young wife is killed so that the man can remarry and get a proper uh, dowry. And in India, sometimes when a husband dies, uh, the woman may be expected to or even be forced to uh, throw herself onto the funeral pyre, as is the old custom. In China and in other countries, it is so economically disadvantageous to have a female child that uh, baby girls are often killed. And in all cultures today, including our own, right here where we live, a woman walking down uh, a street alone is always physically vulnerable and is often psychologically, psychologically vulnerable in any encounter with a man. So, a man who is reasonably kind and respectful of women may not notice or think about any of this. Probably not. So, in a way, uh, that man is not really noticing the actual experience of the women that he knows, that he thinks he knows really well. He doesn't actually see a big part of what her experience is. And I, and I say that because uh, this was certainly true of myself. And I'll tell you the story of what woke me up to this reality. Now, of course, who doesn't hear these stories? I'm sure that nothing that I've told you is news. Everybody knows these things. Uh, the men in the room as well as the women. And I certainly knew them, too. But it's one thing to know something in your head and another thing to know it in, in your heart and in your guts. So I went along in my life, you know, without particularly feeling these things until a certain uh, incident happened. I was, uh, this is, happened when I was abbot of Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, and, and I was, uh, as abbot, I would conduct interviews with students every, every morning. And one day, a young woman student, who was a fairly uh, new student, came in to see me, and she sat down in front of me, and began weeping. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, every morning in the, in the chanting service, we chant the, uh, the lineage. You know, in Zen, we chant uh, the names of all the teachers from the Buddha down to the present. And she said, uh, and, and, the, and all those names, every single one of them, Is a, is a man, a male name. There's not a single woman in the entire Zen lineage. Now, of course, I knew that. She wasn't telling me something I didn't know. And I, and I, also, I had often 
also thought about it. And I thought, well, this is a, this is a shame. You know, it's it's too bad that we don't have any women's names that we can chant. But you know, I didn't think it was that big a deal. But to see this woman sitting in front of me and weeping over this, I mean, I it really was like she shot an arrow right into my heart. And and I'll never forget uh, that experience. Because uh, in that moment, uh, I could feel all of a sudden, uh, in my own feeling, the strong suffering of women, the endless sorrow of being left out, ignored, denied, disrespected, generation after generation after generation for literally thousands of years. And women, you know, are also beyond women. What I mean by that is that once we acknowledge the suffering of women and really feel it, we're also acknowledging all of those outside us and all that is within us that is in the same way uh, left out, ignored, denied, disrespected. And with that acknowledgement and acceptance of that, the real spiritual path begins. So, after I heard that from this young woman, who, she, by the way, uh, only was there for a short time, you know. Then she left very shortly after that, and I never saw her again. And I wonder if she really actually exists, you know, or whether she was like a goddess that floated through just to teach me a lesson. She was just there a short time. But after she left, that experience was so powerful to me that I went screaming around the whole Zen Center. I said, we have to start chanting the names of women immediately. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been uh, involved in any religious organizations, you know that immediately is not a word that usually computes. There are committees and so on, and tradition to consider. And everybody told me, but you know, there really aren't any women's names in the lineage, so how, how are we going to chant the women's names when, you know, we receive this lineage from, from the tradition and there aren't any women's names in it? And I said, well, I have the answer to that. And they said, what's the answer to that? I said, well, in the Buddha's time, there were um, a bunch of women who were ordained and were great uh, adepts and they were the first Buddhist women, and we should chant their names. <coughs> and we know who they are. We have their names. There's a famous uh, text in which uh, their names are given, and poems written by them are, are translated, are, uh, are recorded. But people said, but, but yes, but, uh, well, they're Buddhist, but they're not Zen, and this is a Zen lineage. I said, well, never mind. We should do it anyway. And uh, after much haggling and wrangling and troubles and problems. Some people 
some of the women, of course, could see the wisdom of this and, and appreciated my urgency. And we did it. We started doing it. We started chanting the names of the first Buddhist women. And uh, even though I, years ago, retired as abbot and faded away into the sunset of uh, the Zen Center, uh, they still do it. They still chant those names, and they've added names now too from China and Japan as well. So I thought uh, that in the light of this, I would just read you a little bit of the first. Uh, th this is a book uh, which I really recommend called The First Buddhist Women. Uh, it's a book that a woman by the name of Susan Murcott, M-U-R-C-O-T-T, spent about 10 years researching and working on this book. I think it's the only book she has written. It was a kind of a passionate life's work for her. Anyway, I thought I would just read you a little bit uh, about the first of all Buddhist women, um, Mahapajapati, who was the first Buddhist nun. Do you know about her? Well, good. You can, you can hear about her for the first time tonight. So this is uh, from Susan Murcott's book. Mahapajapati Gotami, who was to become the founder of the first order of Buddhist nuns, was born into the Kolian clan in the town of Devadaha in northeastern India near the foothills of the Himalayas. At her birth, an astrologer foretold that she would be the leader of a large following, and she was named Pajapati, meaning leader of a great assembly. Maha is a prefix which means great. It was further prophesied of her, as it had been of her older sister Maya, that she would be the mother of a great secular or religious ruler. So Maha Pajapati and her sister Maya grew up, were both married to the chief of the Shakyan clan, Sudadana. So they both had the same husband. And they lived with him in the capital town of Kapilavastu. If that name sounds familiar to, the, to you, Sudodana, it's maybe it is, because this is the name of the Buddha's father, because Mahapajapati and Maya were married to the Buddha's father. So Maya was the first one to become pregnant. As was customary, Maya wanted to give birth in her family home, so when her time was near, she underwent the journey to Devadaha, and on the way she stopped in the Lumbini garden to rest and admire the flowering trees. When she raised her arm to pick a blossoming branch, she felt her initial labor pains and gave birth to her son under a tree. When they heard the news back home in Kapilavastu, Sudadana and everyone else were overjoyed at the birth of a son, and the chief immediately called uh, Asita, a famous seer, who declared that if the child remained at home, he would become a secular ruler, and if he left home, he would become a great religious leader. He would become the Buddha, which is what happened. But seven days after she gave birth, Maya died. 
Neither history nor legend tells us why. But we don't really need to know why, and history and legend wouldn't tell you why, because to die in childbirth or soon after was one of the most common things in the world. You know, so it doesn't require explanation as it would today. Just having children was really dangerous. So Mahapajapati, the sister of Maya, took the boy and raised him as her own first child. And later she had two more children. So as we all know the story, many years passed and the Buddha left home. Probably Pajapati was in her 50s or 60s when the Buddha first came back to Kapilavastu after his awakening. You're never a prophet in your own hometown, so when the Buddha (laughs) came back, um, people didn't quite know what to think about him. And the people of the clan were skeptical. But Mahapajapati welcomed him. And his father also did. And when the Buddha preached to them, both of them were so moved by his teachings that they became converts. So time went by and Suddhodana, the Buddha's father, passed away. And little by little, uh, the women of the community found themselves going to Ma Pajapati for <coughs> advice and guidance. And she was a de facto leader of a group of women spiritual seekers. And eventually she uh, went to the Buddha and asked for ordination because there was no order of women monastics. And after some reluctance, the Buddha. Uh, finally did uh, ordain her, and she became uh, the first Buddhist nun and uh, the Buddha's own stepmother. So here's her poem, as recorded in the Terigata. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood, the cause, the craving is dried up, the noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother, knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body. And I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at the disciples all together. Their energy. Their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gautama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying.
So I want to uh, bring all that I'm saying uh, back to our ongoing work on the cushion. What does uh, all this have to do with our meditation practice? And please don't uh, look for something special and holy uh, that you're aiming for. And please don't ignore, don't deny, don't disrespect anything, anything, anything inside of you. Uh, when you sit, uh, sit with strength and dignity. Bring your attention to your breathing and to your posture, sitting up straight. And establish uh, in your breathing and your posture a strong foundation and a strong container. In just being present with your breath, with your body, in just being aware, feel the strength of your Buddha nature beyond the details of your personal life. When you're on your meditation cushion, don't worry about your personal life. And then, having established this strong awareness, this foundation, this container of awareness, sit with openness and generosity. Sit with an invitation. May whatever is within me, whatever is neglected, feared, ignored, despised, may it come forth. And may I be aware of the world's suffering. May I bring uh, into my heart, into my awareness, the experience of all those who have been harmed, oppressed, ignored, denied. Invite all this. Don't be afraid. Don't run away from it. But also don't get stuck to it. Let it come and let it go. Trusting your practice and the process of your life to hold it in the right way and to heal it. So, so please continue your meditation practice with that spirit with generosity of heart, with openness, and with patience. Uh, as probably everybody here knows, uh, in a few hours uh, tonight here in our own county, uh, the state of California is going to uh, kill a, a person pretty awful, I think. It's not something uh, we should gloss over or ignore. Uh, 
we need to uh, sit with that and take it in and feel it, understand it. And, and many other things in this life. This is real, real life. Well, that's what I wanted to tell you tonight. This talk was given by Norm Fisher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 20, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.